Get Lost Stories with me, Neil Kagram. Today we're joined by Jeff Lawson. Jeff, how are you keeping down in Australia? Well, Neil, not too bad considering. I think we've been, been fairly lucky in Australia. We got under the, the restrictions early and, and people have more or less behaved themselves. And we're coming out of summer, so it's been nice and warm. So people have been out and spread out rather than stuck in offices or public transport together. So yeah, I think Australia's as well off as anywhere. It's good to hear and fingers crossed um, we get back to some normality soon. Let's start with yourself where it all began. Born in Wagga Wagga, New well, South Wales. Wagga. Wagga Wagga. Spelt Wagga, said Wagga. Wagga, yeah. Apologies for our pronunciation, so Wagga Wagga. Um, yeah. Was cricket always a passion of yours? Uh, yeah, well growing up in Wagga Wagga, it, it's a very big sporting town. It's, it's, a, it's a country town. Sort of virtually halfway between Sydney and Melbourne, uh, a fairly big country town by Australian standards, and sport was what everybody did. Now that was your distraction. So I played, you know, lots of different sports. In summertime, it was cricket, golf, and tennis. You had to fit those all into the one day. Uh, but cricket, yeah, I, I, I love the game. I love listening to it on the radio, watching it on TV. Um, always wanted to be one of the, one of the famous players, and we, we played at afternoons at school, at home, um, until it got dark. So yeah, cricket, cricket was always high on the schedule. Who was your childhood hero? Well, well, a couple of guys. First of all, it was a guy called Neil Hawke, who was Australian all rounder, who, who bowled and bowled mostly, batted a bit, and then straight after Neil. So that's sort of late sixties, when I was only you know ten or eleven, and then after that. Uh, uh, was Dennis Lilly, who, who came along obviously in the early 70s and was absolutely brilliant, bowled fast and, you know, terrorised people. I, I, I fancied being Dennis Lilly in the backyard. So did you play for uh, your local club side and when did you first get recognised and get into the New South Wales system? Yeah, I played, I played for my, my local school, Wagga Wagga Public. Um, and I played, played club cricket for a club called Lake Albert Cricket Club which is also where Mark Taylor and Michael Slater played in later years. So we all played for the same club in Wagga. And there was, there was about 10 clubs in Wagga. Cricket was a very popular game. So there were a number of clubs. So when you finished school cricket in primary school, you moved on to a club. And my club was Lake Albert Cricket Club, which I'm, I'm still very proud to be associated with when I can, when I get, when I get back to Wagga. Um, and I, I played uh, to a representative high school cricket. I played what they call combined high school. So I played for Riverina, which is my area in southern New South Wales, uh, which extends, you know, it starts about 450 k's from Sydney and extends out to about 1,000 k's from Sydney. So it's a large area. So I played a bit of, bit of rep cricket at that level. At uh, 16 or 17, I played a bit of senior rep cricket, but, but not all that much. The, the state selectors didn't recognise me for any, any state um, sort of country or representative sides at that age um, and it wasn't really until I, I came to Sydney and attended the University of New South Wales where uh, I played in the first grade side and went on from there. And then um, 1977, Kerry Pack and the World, uh, the World Series took all the best players away um, but that, uh, that brought opportunities for players such as yourself. Oh, yeah, a little yeah, bit yeah, about yeah, that yeah. period? Yeah, well, 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 the 76-77 season was my first season in Sydney cricket. I went to the University of New South Wales. I studied optometry and I played cricket for the University of New South Wales. And as it happened, during this 
lock-in period. All the players from that team and the club members were going through every game of that season. And we're down to the final. We're going through a wicket by wicket every day and everybody writes their reminiscences because we won the first Sydney first grade premiership uh, in my first year in Sydney, um, which, which is beating teams with state and, and test players. All the test players used to play club cricket and I was only an 18-year-old from the country. We had, had a number of other people from the young undergraduates who played in that side. And we're just reminiscing about that particular season and how, how cricket was in the forefront of everybody's mind because of, of the centenary test match, which was 76-77. And following on from that, obviously, the, the World Series cricket. And, and so in the next season, 77-78, I played my first game for New South Wales. But I only played because all those good players, as you said, they all were taken off by Kerry Packer. And I was just a young kid. I, you know, I wasn't that, that good. I really didn't deserve my spot in the New South Wales side. But... I was scraping the barrel because all the, the very good players had, uh, had gone off to play for Mr. Packer. And then in 78, you come up, come up against um, England. They were touring over. You, there was a little incident that's very well documented about barrage of bowling to uh, Jeffrey Boycott. But there's a little backstory to this, isn't there? Wasn't it? Whilst you were batting and the late Bob Willis gave you a little send-off and that got you fired up. Do you want to... Yeah, that, 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 that about sums it up. I mean, we're playing New, the New South Wales versus the MCC, which is a pretty big game. You know, it's almost like another test match. But we were depleted because of World Series cricket, but that's fine. And, uh, yeah, I was batting, I think, 10 or 11. And, oh, yeah, mate, I don't, I don't think I'm a dozen or something. And Bob Willis bowled me a bouncer. No helmets in those days, of course. So Bob bowled me a bouncer, right, you know, ducked. Uh, then I think next ball or a couple of balls later, I, I hold out the mid-off, you know, played a drive and got caught a mid-off. And that was the end of the innings. And as I was walking off, I got, I got sledged. And I thought, that's a bit unfair. I'm the, I'm the number 10 or 11 getting out to a test bowler. I mean, who cares? <laughs> got out. But it did make me a little bit annoyed. And, and as it turned out, England only needed two runs to win. They win by, by 10 wickets. And uh, our captain at the time was Andrew Hillage. He was only playing about his fourth or fifth game for New South Wales and he said oh don't worry about opening I'll just get I'll just get one of the batsmen to bowl a ball and we'll I'll make the two runs and we'll get off and I said no way that is not happening you know Jeffrey Boycott happened to be facing you know eight ball overs in those days and I, I think I probably bowled yeah uh, I think I pitched the first one up and then I bowled probably four bounces in a row which were quite sharp not necessarily well directed but pretty quick and boycott uh, about the third one started to have a bit of a whinge about it. The umpire, umpire was a guy called Tom Brooks who umpired a lot of test cricket. Very lovely guy, very good umpire. And Tom, uh, that I found out in later years, Tom was a fast bowler for New South Wales in the 50s and he bowled lots of bounces as well, apparently. But you wouldn't yeah. know it the way he umpired because he umpired strictly to the letter of the law about intimidatory bowling. So anyway, I bowled, I think, four bounces in a row and boycott started to get a bit huffy about it. Uh, and... and and Tom Brooks said, oh, that's enough. Well, like, what? <laughs> what are you talking about? So I bowled another one, and he gloved it in front of his nose, and it just went over second slip's head. I would have loved to have taken the wicket. But Boycott was playing forward, thinking it was going to be full. It wasn't. It was another bouncer, and he just got away with it. And Tom Brooks warned me for intimidatory bowling, but it was too late. The game was over. Mm. Uh, I didn't think much more about it, to be honest, until uh, the, the press made a bit of a story about the next day. 
And then 79, you get drafted into the Australian squad. They're touring India. You nearly get picked um, at Eden Gardens, but they go with, with a load of spinners. 1980, you then make your debut. First again in the ODI side against New Zealand and I think a week later, was it, in the test, in the, in the test match arena. What was it like to get the baggy green? Uh, well, yeah, pretty special. I mean, I, you know, I was still, I was like, you're still a young kid. Still doing university, um, just just doing my best, I suppose. And I bowl, you know, I used to bowl fast, not not so straight in those days, but but pretty solid pace. Um, and obviously, the selectors thought I was uh, good enough to join. All, all the all the players had been in World Series cricket, so Greg Chappell was playing, Doug Walters played, Dennis Lilly played, Rod Marsh played. Um, so there was a lot of guys who were my heroes playing in that Test match. Um, but yeah, to get picked was was something. Very special indeed. I mean, I, I I got picked for that tour of India, so I'd been given a baggy green and, and my my lovely uh, woolen sweater. Uh, and I remember putting that on the night I got that and, and sleeping in it, even though my sister thought I was being very stupid at the time, because uh, I thought I, I might never ever get the you know to get it for a test match. Um, and it took about another eighteen months for that to happen. But yeah, look, those, those things are very special, and you know to, to walk out. Even if you, the first test was at Brisbane and it was very hot and very sweaty, I still had still had my, my baggy green and my sweater on, you know, just to say that I'd worn it on the field. And then 81, it was in the UK, no, the Ashes series, known as Botham's Ashes as such. Um, you played, obviously, in the series, involved in that famous Headingley Test match. Talk us through that series from your perspective. Well, yeah, well, it, well, it was a, it was a great series. To be honest, it was obviously captured everybody's imagination. You know, unfortunately for us, England won, but but very fortunate for England. I mean, you know, and, and Beefy played some superb, superb innings and bowled wonderfully well. And you know, that that sort of stuff makes cricket folklore. When you look back on it, you go, well, you know, what, what a fabulous thing to be a part of. Uh, I didn't think that at Headingley that day when we, you know, we thought we had the game won. I mean, the series we won the first test. In, uh, I think at Trent Bridge, a very overcast game. It was a very wet, wet summer for a start. So the bowlers were nearly always going to dominate. And I think Kerry Alderman bowled very well and Dennis Sully in the first test. And we, we won, not by much, I don't think, maybe three or four wickets. I was actually at the crease batting with Trevor Chappell when we won the first test. So we had to be at least seven down. Um, and then we were well in front in Headingley, of course. And, and uh, you know, Beefy turned that one around. So, yeah, that, those things are quite quite debilitating at the time. I mean, I, I hurt my back at T on the fourth day. I think I snapped a ligament in my lower back. And once I'd stopped bowling, that was it. It was really difficult for me to even stand up, let alone play cricket. So I didn't bowl. Uh, I think I bowled a few hours after T while I was still warm, but it was quite painful. I couldn't hardly stand up the next day when we had to come and bat. But that's that, those games make cricket history. And, you know, every time you go to England, people re remind you of, of heading the 81. So you just remind them of it. New results of matches where you didn't. Yeah. <laughs> Can you sum up the uh, the rivalry with England and from a from an Australian perspective, what does the Ashes actually uh, actually mean? Well, it, it's the it's the peak of our cricket rivalry, and you know it, it's a it goes back several hundred years, well, two hundred and fifty years almost. It, you know, it's it's colonialism versus imperialism. It's it's the colonists versus the mar. It's all that sort of stuff, and, and that history is maintained. You know, from from the eighteen seventies when the first Test match was on, that the Australians wanted to play for Australia and prove that, that they were as, they were as good as the mother country by playing sport. 
and to a degree that still happens today. I'll see things, you know, it's a, the world's are much different than it was then, but to a degree that, that history still permeates every England-Australian clash. And you see it every time the Ashes comes up. It doesn't matter if England and Australia are ranked fifth and sixth or whatever. Uh, when those two teams meet, it, you know, it, it, it incites the imagination of all the England fans, Australian fans. I mean, I, I don't, I'm not sure what Indian and Pakistani fans or West Indian fans think about the Ashes, but, but Indian, uh, England and Australian fans, it, it's still the series you really, really do want to win. I mean, you want to win all of them, but, but the Ashes, wow, that, that, that is the biggest of big deals in Test cricket. And then off the 81 series, you actually then um, regained the Ashes down under. Dennis Lilly, your, your hero, wasn't playing. I think believe he was injured. You get 34 wickets yourself in that series. How did that make you feel as a bowler? Is that the time when you really felt that that's where you belong in international cricket? Yeah, look, look I guess. Because I, mean, I got dropped after that first season in 80-81. I got dropped, even though we won by 10 wickets. And that, that I found that quite debilitating, let alone disappointing. So... You know, to fight your way back in the side, I played 82. We toured Pakistan and, and I, I had to do a lot of bowling there. And that was, that was very hard work. I had a pretty good series in Pakistan, which wasn't, wasn't to be expected. Then we came back for that 82, 83 Ashes, uh, which everybody thought was going to be close. And it was pretty close. Uh, and Dennis got hurt in the first test. His knee was just a mess. It couldn't go on. And Terry Alderman was tackled by that spectator. He tackled the spectator and he was out of the series. And Tomo was out of the... Well, Tomo came in uh, and, the, and the attack came about by accident almost. I think, you know, Rackerman, Hogg, Lawson, and Carl Rackerman got injured as well in Brisbane. So, you know, Tomo came in and there it was. We, we, got, the, we got the job done. Um, but, yeah, it was a great series for me. I mean, I, I bowled very well, made a few runs at the same time and, and made a contribution. So, you know, regaining the ashes then, and it was... I think it was only 2-1 and... Uh, England had that great win at Melbourne by a couple of runs, which was incredibly exciting. Uh, then we, you know, we had a draw the last test in Sydney, and that game was still in the in the balance up to the last sort of day and a half. So, uh, another very close series, and I you mean, know, I played my part. And yeah, I did start to feel comfortable being in the Australian Test team. And then the next two Ashes series um, doesn't go Australia's way. In eighty-seven, one, you also injured for most of it. But then how special was it in in 89? You come over, a lot of people were just writing Australia off and then you win it 4-0. Is that the one that stands out for you? Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, 82, 83 was pretty special and 85 was, you know, we lost our top 16 players, went to the Rebel Tour, we were missing them. And yet still, that was a very close series. Uh, 86, 87, England played some great cricket in Australia under... Mike Gatting, you know, they a terrific team and played well. Uh, so, 89 was that chance of revenge. I'd had, let's see, two Ashes tours, lost both. Um, and feeling like, at, 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 you know, at age 32, that this was definitely going to be my last tour. Uh, and Alan Border was feeling the same way. And, of course, the local media wrote us off. And, you know, I think to a degree, the England players uh, weren't expecting that big a contest. I mean, you always get a contest between England and Australia, but I think subconsciously they may have thought we, we were going to be easy to beat, and we weren't. You know, we, we won a, a great victory at Heading. That first test just turned it all around. You know, Alan Border played aggressively, 
You know, Mark Taylor came into his own. Steve Waugh started making 100 after 100. Then you had Boone and Jones to go with it. Marsh opening. You know, great combination. You know, Ian Healy was, was coming into his own as a, as a test keeper. Uh, and then basically, I, I guess, you know, it's Hughes, Alderman, Lawson with a bit of help from Trevor Hearns. Yeah, to only play 12 players in a whole six test series is something very special. Um, but yeah, look, we won 4-0, but to this day, I, I can't work out why. England had, had some pretty good players. Um, you know, we, we just turned up and did what we had to do. And 89 was actually a really warm summer. So the, the pitches were harder and drier and we liked the sun in our back. I mean, I hate playing cricket when it's cold, cold or wet. So conditions favoured the Aussies a bit more than maybe they did in 81 and 85. So a few things went our way. And, and on top of that, we played some pretty determined cricket. And we can't talk through the 80s without mentioning the great West Indies side. I think the way the scheduling happened, I believe you actually played um, 10 test matches uh, in a row. Uh, five at home, five, oh, yeah. five away. A word on that side, you know, regarded by oh. by many as one of the great, one of the greatest sides ever. Well, they had, but you know, they probably had fifteen years of the greatest sides ever. But but they, we seem to be playing them all the time. They they came out of Australia, they played Test series, they played One Day cricket, and the Australian cricket board just kept bringing them out, which is great for the crowds. The Australians loved them, but. They're pretty tough to play against, and every time we we had the odd Test victory, which was which is terrific against them, uh, but but they were just way too strong. You know, magnificent batting lineup with Greenwich Haynes to start off with Richards Lloyd, you know, maybe Richie Richardson, Larry Gomes would annoy you, just couldn't get him out. You know, um, Jeff Dujon would make runs, and then you know Harlan Garner, Marshall, you know Roberts in the early days, and then Walsh later on, and then a few other guys like Wayne Daniel, Sylvester. Clark to fill in, you know, they were, they were magnificent cricketers and, and any victory over them was very, very well earned. So we had the odd victory in one day cricket and the odd test victory, but uh, that time we played them 10 test matches in a row and I think it was off the top of my head, it might have been 6-2 with a couple of draws. That wasn't a bad record, to be honest. 6-2 with a couple of draws and 10 tests against that side. I'm happy and with then that. the back end of your career, you actually had the skipper of New South Wales in your final year, 92. I believe I'm correct in saying that you actually won the Sheffield Shield. Again, a proud moment in your career? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I captain actually for about three and a half years. Uh, we, so we had a couple of, couple of wins in that time. I won the one-day title, won a couple of Shields, which was, was fantastic. Um, I really enjoyed my, my captaincy. Um, Particularly played the SCG where we'd always play three spinners and, and captaining spinners and watching them do their job was a wonderful part of cricket. You know, I wasn't just a just a fast bowling captain at all. And I so yeah, captaining you know New South Wales was a very very good. It was great to captain with the Test players because we you know we had the War Brothers. We might have had Michael Bevan, Slater, Taylor, uh, that that sort of lineup. Um, Greg Matthews, of course, you know. Now, they were great players to, to play with and great players to captain, but they, they certainly good players. So, yeah, I really enjoyed captaining New South Wales. What was the great, who was the greatest captain that you played under throughout your career? Well, well, probably the greatest captain was that the guy who captained us through our first, first grade premiership way, way back in 76, 77, because his name was John Rogers. And, of course, his son, Chris Rogers, ended up playing, you know, 30-odd test matches. So, so John was my captain. 
in those days. And, and he, he encouraged all those spin bowls. He was a very positive attacking captain. Uh, he taught me a hell of a lot about the game, as did his brother Derek, who was my captain when I was at Wagga. So I was very lucky to have those sort of guys teach me the, the fundamentals at a very young age. And then, you know, probably have someone like Rick McCosker when I first played state cricket. When World Series finished cricket and all the players were back, you know, Rick McCosker was a terrific captain as well. But you know, just the experience, I think, of playing a lot with spin bowling in those conditions, it teaches you more about the game. You know, you, you've got to learn all the different aspects of it. And you know, it, the game teaches you itself a, a great deal. But if you get stuck with boring, medium pace or, or a one-spin attack, or you play on wickets that that are quite bland, which we get a lot these days, you don't actually learn too much about the game. But I was very lucky I played in conditions where bowls actually had an opportunity and they might have been spin bowls, not necessarily seam bowls. So you, you, you did tend to learn more about the game and those captains were a big part of that education. And who gave you the, uh, the nickname Henry? Well, I can tell you exactly uh, because Henry Lawson, the real Henry Lawson, is a very famous Australian uh, journalist, short story, prose and poetry writer, one of the most famous. In fact, he was so famous, his picture was on our $10 note originally when it was issued. So that, the original Henry Lawson was a, was a very, very, very famous guy, turn of the, the 20th century, uh, late, late 19th, turn of the 20th century. He was very, very famous. And uh, my name was Lawson. And the first day I turned up at the University of New South Wales Trigger Club, one of the guys I met there, a guy called Jim Robson, by coincidence, his son, Sam Robson's played Test Cricket for England, uh, even though he was born and bred in Sydney. Um, uh, Jim Robson gave me that nickname the first time he ever met me. And virtually everybody calls me Henry, uh, including successive prime ministers all refer to me by that. They don't call me Jeff. So it goes back to 1976 at the University of New South Wales. And after your playing career ended, did a little bit of coaching for New South Wales, media work but then in 2007 the opportunity to coach Pakistan came about can you talk a little bit about that period and then how did the opportunity actually come and what conversations did you have to get the get the role well yeah it's it's a fascinating story because I was I was doing some coaching uh, plus I was working virtually full-time in the media doing ABC radio TV overseas writing a column which I still do for the, the Sun Herald so yeah and I was really enjoying that and I was actually doing more cricket with my club and more coaching there. Um, and then I just got a phone call one day when I was pulling up in my driveway um, from an Indian friend of mine who lives in Sydney. And he, he said, you know, um, I think you'd be perfect to coach Pakistan. And I just thought he was taking the mickey, obviously. Um, and that was just obviously just after the 07 World Cup when, when Bob Woolmer, you know, tragically died after that game against Ireland. Um, and I, I had no wish to coach any international cricket side because <laughs> I was pretty happy doing what I was doing. Um, and I said, no, nah, look, look, you know, a thousand planets would have to line up for me to do that. That's just, that's just ridiculous. So forget about it. So 48 hours later, he rang me back and said, look, you know, come on. I think you'd be brilliant at this job. Um, why don't you just go and have an interview and see how you go? So I said, oh, okay. I haven't been to Islamabad for about oh, 25 years. Um, I'll be good. I'll stop off in Dubai and play a bit of golf and, you know, I'll have a couple of days. It'll be fine. So I went, you know, I, I prepared 
a presentation to give to the chairman of the board, Nazim Ashraf, who was a terrific guy. Madassa Nazar was the head of the academy at the time who I played against and got on really well with. And I you know, thought he was a terrific cricket guy. And I gave a presentation up at, up at a place called Murray, which is up in the mountains past Abbottabad. A lovely, lovely place. So having a board meeting there. And I just told them what I, what I would do. And it was all about empowering players and, and getting them to make the rules that, that they stick to, which is very... Um, very anti how Pakistan went about it. It was all about an authoritarian state and how they, how players were supposed to behave and, and uh, you know, the administrators had all the power and I just thought that, that didn't work. And that's why they were so inconsistent. And so I thought I'd never get the job with that presentation. So I went on my merry way, came home and a week or so later, I got another phone call. I said, oh, how, how, how are you going? Said, oh, congratulations. I said, congratulations on what? Oh, we've decided you're the candidate. <laughs> you're what? <laughs> And that's the first I really, you know, it stuck home that I was going to be, the, the, if I wanted to take it, I was going to be the Pakistan national coach. But I met the players when I was there. Uh, I, I had, uh, I met their new chairman who was a, so a wonderful guy who wanted cricket people to run the cricket. He didn't want to be the controlling influence. They had some new people in administration. Uh, and it seemed like they were heading in a very different direction to what Pakistan cricket had been in the past. So it was a combination of meeting the players and the players being very keen on, on my way of doing things, plus the administrators being open to so many things, which was not normally the case in maybe even India or Pakistan in those days. So, yeah, and I, you know, I made some provisos about if, you know, if, if things weren't done properly, I'd just walk out. So, took the job and I had a, had a fascinating, wonderful, memorable time, you know, you know, great time in my life. And the highlight, was it, would it be just getting, getting to the final of the, the World T20? Yeah, look, the, that's the highlight of playing in retrospect. I mean, just, just being with the guys and seeing them improve and how they responded to some new systems and I bought my own you know strength and conditioning coach a guy called Dave Dwyer from Australia who got on brilliantly with them and set them some tough tasks and they responded to it and, and dealing with Mohammed Yusuf and and uh, Yunus Khan and those those sort of people you know Misbah Al-Haq was back just got back into the side for that T20 tournament and they, they were wonderful people Shaul Malik was just a young guy that they made the captain and I just really enjoyed their company but they loved their cricket they, they improved rapidly um, and we did that 220 World Cup. We, we went into it with low expectations, with it, just to enjoy ourselves, um, play to our, our limitations, and, and not be scared of defeat. Don't worry about it if we got beat. And we, we won. Well, we had that draw or that tie with, with India in the rounds, but we lost the bowl off. And then we, we lost the final by a couple of runs. So we, we played some pretty good T20 cricket. And I think all the players became aware that they could compete with any yeah. side in the world. Do you feel you got a fair crack at the role? I know you're only in it for 15 months, I believe. Oh, yeah. Well, it, well in the end, I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's the political realisation in, in, in Pakistan. The, the government changed. You know, I was fascinated by, by Pakistan culture, but also how government worked over there. And, you know, I met uh, uh, Musharraf a couple of times and, you know, it was was fascinating time. Imran Khan was was getting more into his politics at that time. I had a couple of meetings with him, but they had the the national election, 
which had been put off after Benazir Bhutto had been assassinated in December 07. So they put it off for a few months and, and to everybody's surprise, the government changed. Um, you know, I think the People's Party lost and, and uh, Zadari's party won. And, and once the government changes, everybody at the Pakistan Cricket Board just empties their drawer because they answer to a state minister and that minister will change. You'll be a friend of the new uh, president. And so, you know, everybody gets gets out. And that's what happened. The new chairman of the board was eventually appointed, E.J. Zbart. And he, you know, he was the polar opposite of Nazim Ashraf. You know, he just wanted to to control everything and micromanage. And, you know, I, I, I couldn't communicate with him. First of all, he ignored me for, for a month or so, even though his office was... 200 yards from where I was living, um, but it just made no sense. He was a nonsensical person who wanted to take Pakistan cricket backwards at, at a rate of knots. And he, he, he didn't want me, even though the players wanted me. So that's, that's not going to work in Pakistan. So you, you accept what goes on. And I, I was always prepared for that, that, that the politicians would have their way and their influences. And, you know, you've just got to, got to accept that's what's going to happen. And, and eventually, you know, there's no way I could have worked for EJS, but I just couldn't even, you know, you couldn't have a normal conversation with him. Did you have any desires to uh, coach internationally um, in the subsequent years for any team? Did you have any conversations with any other teams? Uh, yeah, I've had, had quite a few conversations, but I mean, fortunately, I mean, I got to coach in the IPL 2011, uh, done more work with New South Wales. And so there's been plenty of stuff going. You know, I've done a few T20 franchises around the world. You know, got tied up with the Sydney Sixers again. And so there's lots of things happening. Uh, I've done some work for Afghanistan. I've worked with the Bangladesh Academy. I've worked with groups in Sri Lanka. Uh, yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll coach whoever ever feels like they need my help. I'm, I'm not that fussed about coaching one international side, but uh, just just helping to you know make players better. And how do you view the game as a whole at the moment? And if we talk specifically about Australia, so they had a couple of years ago the you know the ball tampering incident. They seem to have won back the public. You know, obviously they had this Amazon documentary. How do you view things, world cricket and Australian cricket? How do you view both at the moment? Well, the game moves on, and it's moved on with its its, it's T Twenty influences. Um, you know, the 50-over World Cups are still important, but, but the 50-over matches in between don't seem to be... You know, T20 internationals don't seem to have a, a lot of lot going for them. Um, but T20 World Cups do, and, and IPLs and big bashes seem to be very popular. So the fans are getting a lot of what they want. And they're also getting, you know... The good test cricket that's being played is is still fascinating and people want to watch it. I know in Australia, there's still a huge appetite for test cricket. You know, people people get, get into the big bad. Australians don't follow the IPL very much. It's on at very poor hours live here. You know, a lot of games start at midnight over here and people don't really get into the IPL. But the big bash is now part of our, our summer uh, and, and even non-cricket fans want to switch it on at summer evening they get home at seven o'clock they can switch on a game and, and, and follow the game which which is terrific so t20's got its place i think that the the most fascinating thing is that the test cricket is still popular with a lot of people uh, you keep reading about 
people writing off test cricket, yet, yet the fans are still out there for it. Sometimes they're not turning up at the ground, but they're all watching it, they're taking it in, and, and test cricket seems to have a, have a primacy that the T20 never will have in another hundred years. So I, I think that's terrific because most of the players acknowledge that the test cricket is the best form to play, but they're making more money at a T20. And that's good. You know, that's fine. You know, everyone's got to make a dollar and, and move on. Uh, I think the, the next big move is to have, have women's cricket move to that sort of level and, and have their T20 tournaments recognised. You know, it's just that sleepy giant, I think, uh, the WBBL does a bit of that, but there's there's some other things out there that, that can be even bigger than bigger than that. And then the direction the Australian side of the moment's going in on the Justin Langer. Well, 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 I don't know about Justin Langer, but but what's changed? They got Steve Smith and Dave Warner back. <laughs> that became they became a very good side, and they've got a great they've got a pretty good bowling lineup. So you got a you know excellent bowling lineup. Um, you know, Smith, one of the best players in the world, along with Warner. Then the other guys have got to play support roles. So it's what team you put on the field. Um, I think they're always going to win the public back. Uh, you know, obviously their, their behaviour leading up to that disturbed a lot of people, disturbed a lot of ex-players, that's for sure, not, not just the fans. But uh, So they had to ameliorate that behaviour. There's no doubt about that. And they've done that pretty, pretty good. I, mean, I think Tim Payne's the man who deserves the big pat on the back. You know, he, he's been a terrific leader. He was born in as a... Bit of a stopgap um, because his because his ethics were considered so high, but his cricket's also outstanding, and he's grown as a cricketer during this tenure of the Australian captain. So um, he's a he's a pretty tough man to replace at the moment. But uh, you know, I'd, I'd certainly give Tim Payne a big pat on the back for what happens on the field. It's perfect, Jeff. Really appreciate your time today. Uh, fantastic insight into your into your career. So thank you very much. Cheers, Neil. Perfect. Good luck to everybody out there. Stay safe. Stay safe. So Neil Kagram, Cricket Astro is Jeff Lawson. Thank you.